You're listening to Alpha Health and Wellness Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Haley Schaff, where I'm here to empower you to become the alpha of your health. Welcome back to the show. In today's podcast, I want to kind of piggyback off a podcast I did with Mary Kay Kilfoy a few weeks ago, where she was talking about how she is able to help support her son through Whole Foods and kind of really right away since he was young, getting him on the bandwagon. And so today I interview Allie Owen, who is a occupational therapist and also a longtime supporter of me and the show. And because of that, we've become really good friends. And so because of her expertise and her specialty in childhood behavior, especially, I really wanted to get her on. So what about people who are kind of learning about health a few years down the road after maybe they had kids and their kids are kind of on more of a standard American diet, they might be a picky eater. What do you do about that? And that is what we are going to address in today's show. We talk about dealing with picky eaters, where picky eating might stem from root cause wise, which that's fascinating. Allie's very big into root cause as am I, and being able to really kind of troubleshoot that. We talk a lot about ingredient and habit swaps. So how I talk a lot about we, you know, on my social media, talking a lot about different ingredients and how we can swap them for something better. We talk a lot about that, especially in the context of a picky eater or someone who really might have a hard time transitioning to a healthier way of eating. And so we give some tips on how to do that. And I think that this is going to be a really great conversation for anybody, because whether you have a kid who's a picky eater or doesn't like to eat healthy, or maybe you're an adult and you want to be trying these healthier foods, but you're struggling, a lot of these behavior tips can really be helpful for you. So without further ado, we're going to get into the episode and I cannot wait to hear what you learned. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. We've been connected for a long time and I'm just so excited to now chat with you in a little bit different light and kind of talk about you and your specialties. And so I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you, Haley, for having me. Um, I have looked up to you and everything that you do for so long. um, And it's been really cool to like connect with, you know, what my areas of expertise are and what yours are. Um, So I'm really excited to have this chat today. I'm so excited. So I guess to kind of kick things off, you know, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do and kind of how you got to doing the work that you do now. Yeah. So my name's Allie and I have been an occupational therapist for three years. Um, lots of people may not know what occupational therapy is, so I can go into my little quick elevator pitch, but basically OT, um, occupational therapy for short addresses daily activities across the lifespan. That's kind of like the umbrella term. um, And that looks like a lot of different things. We can work with a lot of different populations um, suffering from a lot of different illnesses and diseases. I specifically have specialized in pediatric OT um, for about two years. I did a couple things when I first graduated that didn't specialize in pediatrics, but then I kind of found my groove in peds. So I started at pediatric outpatient clinics, and that looked a lot like 
helping kids with different diagnoses engage in the things that they need and want to do in their daily life. Um, ranging from things that limited them in the school setting to things that limited them at home and in the community. So things like handwriting or emotional regulation or picky eating, which I think is what we're going to get a little bit more Mm -hmm. into today. Um, But yeah, just really like working with the families to figure out where they need support to help their kids function optimally and be as independent as possible um, in the things they need and want to do every single day. I love that. What made you get into peds? Like what made you drawn to that? Because like you said, I mean, occupational therapy, it ranges, it has such a big range. Um, I'm trying to remember. I've like always loved working with kids. Um, but I never really wanted to be a teacher or work in like a preschool or anything like that. So I think just in figuring out how I wanted to work with kids in a way that was fulfilling to me, I stumbled across occupational therapy. Um, and I just loved it. I loved like, there's so much, um, that we can do as pediatric OTs that address, and you'll love this, address the root cause of Mm -hmm. what might be going on with a kiddo. Um, mainly from like a sensory and motor perspective, but you know, if a kid has trouble handwriting, working on their handwriting isn't necessarily the answer. There's going to be a lot of, okay, what are their fine motor skills and how is their, postural control, like can they stay seated to write something for an extended period of time? Mm -hmm. Or is that core strength not there? So there's a lot of playing detective in pediatric OT, which I have just always loved. Um, And there's a lot of focus on what we call primitive reflexes. So reflexes that we have when we're babies and when we're kids that are kind of supposed to integrate and become mature. um, So we can do other more complex movements when we're older. And if those reflexes don't get integrated and they're what we call retained, it can cause a lot of secondary issues like difficulty with handwriting or attention um, or, you know, 8,000 other things. So I really love like being able to play that detective, like I said, and get to the bottom of what might be the difficulty a kiddo is like what might be the root of the difficulty a kid is having. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Very cool. So what, um, I guess kind of going off of habits, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, when we kind of were initially kind of talking about this call, you know, this is kind of building off of a call that we had or like a podcast I had a few kind of months ago talking about, okay, you know, how do you get your kid to eat healthy? Um, this I'm referring to the one that I did with Mary Kay Kilfoy and how she talked about, you know, right when her son was young, like the habits that she started with him. And I kind of wanted to talk about, okay, well, what about when your kid is six, seven, eight years old, maybe they have behavioral disorders, attention disorders, maybe they're a picky eater. How are you now going to, or what are some tips that we can kind of put into play to establish better eating habits for them and break them of this food addiction from this hyper palatable food that they might be so used to eating? How do we transition them? Um, so we can kind of get down into that rabbit hole. Absolutely. And you described it perfectly. It is definitely a rabbit hole, but, um, I'm super willing to work it out with you. So your listeners really understand like how they can make these changes because, 
um, you know, after I listened to that podcast you did um, with Mary Kay Kilfoy, I 100% agreed. Um, she had wonderful points on how to get your kid started off on the quote unquote right foot in terms of, um, you know, nutrition and just nutrient density early on in life. But, you know, what if you don't know all of this stuff when you first start having kids and now, you know, somebody's listening to your podcast and they really want to make these changes with their older kiddos. And it's hard because when kids have routines for such a long time, it's really hard to break them. Um, I mean, even adults don't like change and we don't like breaking routines. I know when I kind of went on my real food journey, um, there were a lot of bumps in the road and it's really hard to make those changes, especially when it's like you don't see the results of it for a long period of time. Um, It's a lot harder to stick with the changes. So yeah, in terms of um, working on how to make those changes with older kids that are already have those established routines and maybe, you know, those hyper palatable foods are the quick, easy, the kid needs a snack, let's get this in them. But, you know, how is that affecting their little bodies? Um, I think as adults, we can tolerate those kinds of foods a little bit better to an extent. I mean, we know that there's things in them that we shouldn't be tolerating um, well, but our systems are more developed than these little kids are. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I always try to recommend to the families that I talk to about picky eating, those small changes and those small steps that we can make. So it's not this, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't buy goldfish. We're not eating goldfish again, because, you know, then you have those big behaviors and the meltdowns and, you know, it doesn't create a healthy relationship with snacks or food. Um, so I think I can kind of start about, start talking about how picky eating in general, mm. like I know we're not necessarily talking about picky eating. We're talking about increasing nutri- nutrient density for mm-hmm. kiddos. But a lot of the time when families or parents might try to do that, it can come across as picky eating because, you know, you introduce more um, like grass-fed beef or dairy, high-quality dairy, or, you know, just fruits and vegetables that they may not normally eat. Um, And they're going to come back with some resistance because that's not what they're used to. Mm -hmm. And that is typically what we call picky eating. Now, there's more extreme versions of picky eating that gets into like the sensory components of food and, you know, kids that will only eat white foods or only eat foods that are crunchy. That Mm. is probably a more complicated rabbit hole that I don't know that we would necessarily, um, will get into today, but we can talk about that, um, that picky eating from the perspective of you introduce a new food and you get like parents will get pushback from their Mm. kids. And how do we address that? Yeah, let's do it. And okay. I, I know we were talking about this offline and yeah. how we, and I just, I'm ex- definitely excited to go into, into the rabbit hole here and just kind of maybe, you know, we think of, oh, my kid's just a picky eater. That's just a normal thing. But right. when you mentioned the root cause, the root mm-hmm. cause of picky eating, I think might surprise a lot of listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically we can think about um, the state of our nervous system and what it has to do 
with whether a child is willing to try new foods at mealtimes. Um, so a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with the nervous system in terms of the fight or flight response, because I know you talk about that a lot and, you know, activating the parasympathetic nervous system, um, that rest and digest state in order for, you know, just optimal wellness in general and like de- decreasing the stress response um, because we know how much the stress response impacts so many other physiological functions. Um, but if we don't activate that parasympathetic response, um, especially at mealtimes, kids are going to be in that fight or flight response and their bodies are not going to be able to be ready to learn and try new things or just feel at ease and comfortable with the new things that are on their plate. So that immediately puts them on the defensive and um, just closes off their willingness to um, try those new foods. So if we think about um, that fight or flight response, Um, It's our ancestral instinct to escape and run away when our brains and our like subconscious system feels afraid, unsafe, or threatened. Um, And we know from just a lot of information out these days and from you, Haley, that our body can't tell the difference between that fear of, hey, this is new and different on my plate and I need to run away from a tiger. So it doesn't differentiate between those stressors well. Um, And that physiological response can actually shut the appetite down completely due to those cortisol spikes that it creates. Um, Now, obviously, we can't see this process happen. So it's just going to come across as, oh, this child is unwilling to participate in what we deem, quote unquote, appropriate at mealtimes. You know, they're being difficult. They just need to eat their veggies. They, um, you know, X, Y, and Z thing that we tell ourselves when we get this pushback from kids, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to food. So if their nervous system is perceiving that threat, um, it can also be intensified by so many factors from how we respond as adults. Mm. Um, One of the things I tell a lot of families is that your kids regulate off of you. So if their fight or flight response puts you into a fight or flight response, it's just that cyclical um, like defensive mechanism of now they're defensive, which puts you on the defensive. And then, you know, there's forcing and bribing and all this stuff that adults try to do to get their kids to, you know, make these healthier choices and eat the foods that are presented to them. But it, it not, it never resolves itself because, um, the kids just have that response that they can't break out of because first they were feeling threatened by the food. Now they're feeling threatened by the adult's response and not that the adults are intentionally responding in a way that, um, they mean to harm their kids nervous system, but, it's, I just love bringing the awareness to parents about that because even just hearing like the more you stay calm at mealtimes and the more you just kind of present things as matter of fact and take that pressure away, the more your child's nervous system 
will be able to feel safe and respond well. Um, because, you know, like I mentioned a little while ago, like their cortisol levels will be decreased. Um, and just their stress response in general is going to be put back into more of that rest and digest state where they can have more fun and be more carefree and try new foods. Um, so we can talk a little bit about what some of those strategies are for parents to help, um, like decrease that stress response for kiddos if you'd like to, or we can um, talk about um, more of what would enact the stress response and that fight or flight response for kids first. Yeah. I kind of want to talk about that first. Like sure. what, and, and I also wonder, do, do you think that because like if, you know, I hear that people, I hear adults say this all the time. Oh, well, I'm a really, really picky eater. You know, yeah. I'm a picky eater. I'm a picky eater. Do you think that so much of that stems more from like this childhood stress response? Or do you think it maybe transitions even into adulthood where if they're, if we're in this constant fight or flight, like they're just not mm. willing to put things into play. Like they're not willing to try new things. Like they, it's almost like a comfort at that point to like knowing what's safe. Do you yeah. feel, do you feel that? I think, I think it kind of depends on where they were as a kid, if they were picky eating, if they were a picky eater or identified as a picky eater as a kid, it could be kind of one of two things. They were told they were a picky eater enough that it was just kind of like the identity that they ascribed mm -hmm. to the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. um, or, uh, you know, they had the picky eating behaviors early on and it was just hard to break from. I think if somebody wasn't a picky eater as a kid and identifies as one as an adult, um, it could be more of what you're saying on, you know, if they're in that fight or flight response all the time, like they, food is sometimes the one thing in our life that we have control over. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's how a lot of eating disorders develop, like kids who are going through X, Y, and Z issue in their family or, um, their social or academic life, like they'll control their food. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess as adults, if we weren't picky eaters as kids, if things in our life feel out of control, the foods that we're eating, um, can be in our control. And a lot of the time, those hyper palatable foods are the things that bring people those dopamine hits and make us feel, um, like more, I don't want to say nourished because we know they're not nourishing foods, but, um, it, it just, when people get addicted to those kinds of foods, it makes them feel safe. Yes. So they'll say that those are the only foods they'll eat. And those are the foods they, um, are identifying as their safe foods as picky yeah. eaters, even if they maybe subconsciously know that they're not the best choices. And um, it's so interesting too, is I, cause I wonder, like, I look at households where, you know, maybe the firstborn was a picky eater because the mm -hmm. parents just, you know, always gave it whatever, chicken tenders, yep. pasta, whatever. But then the second child, they start introducing food more. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. okay, well, what is the difference? Because clearly both kids grew up in a similar household with similar stresses, but right. maybe was it because they were creating an environment for change or more nutrition mm -hmm. or, you know, what, what could that be? there yeah. but you know there's so many kind of different factors but like you said even kids might perceive stress I guess differently or be in a mm -hmm. sympathetic state for a different reason yep yeah and I see that a lot I do see 
like if one kid's a picky eater, they're not necessarily all going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of the time it's those older kiddos, like you just, the example you just uh, mentioned, the older kiddos will be quote unquote pickier than the younger kiddos. And then the younger kids will come along and like, oh, baby brother eats everything that puts that's put in front of him. Like maybe I'll try new food. So that's actually a really cool dynamic um, to get into working with families, especially if there's like an older kid and then a baby or a toddler, Mm -hmm. because you can kind of use that as a therapy strategy Mm -hmm. and just say like, oh, well, you know, if your baby brother is trying eggs on his plate, let's put them on your plate too and see what you think. Um, And then it kind of takes that pressure off the older kid because it's more of, oh, well, if my baby brother can do it, then why can't I do it? Right. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a cool dynamic to get into, but it's, it's nature versus nurture, right? Mm-hmm. If, you know, parents, it's their first kid. They're just, they're trying to do their best. They, nobody gives you a manual for how to parent. So, um, a lot of the time, like some of those, um, things that become part of their routine, they learn from, right. If they give the older kid goldfish, as a snack. I don't know why I keep going back to goldfish, but it's a very popular <laughs> okay. one. It works. Um, but if they give goldfish as a snack after preschool every day, um, and then they decide to make another choice with their next kid, they kind of realize like, oh, like I have other options. I don't need to always go to this. And then they learn and they, um, you know, when we know better, we do better. So you just said always- something that just kind of made me think of like as, as adults, maybe, you know, why we might be addicted to these foods. Yeah. Like, you know, why in our twenties and thirties and forties, why some people still eat like they're seven years old. <laughs> but I, I, I wonder if it's because of like the stress response that like, Oh, I had this every day after school, I would always have goldfish or like, yeah. you know, cereal. And that's what made me feel good. And so now I'm going to do it as a 30 year old. Yeah. It's still not giving me the nutrition, but I wonder like if it brings us back to these feelings, right? Like you, that's why we yeah. love comfort food because exactly. it, it gives you that dopamine hit, but it's not actually fixing the root. So you, that just like really made me think of so many different people, even that I work with or see, you mm-hmm. know, you see these people on social media, they eat like they're five years old right? and they're <laughs> middle-aged adults. And they, we wonder why we have hormonal issues, but I think it's not necessarily just the root cause of the, it's not just like base level, the taste it's what's rooted in that. Like, why are they seeking why are they seeking that? So that was, that's super interesting. No. And that's a great point too, because, um, about a year ago I was just dealing with a lot of, um, like emotional regulation and behavioral stuff in my clinical practice that I, it was just a lot of like band-aid interventions. It was like, okay, like let's teach kids these strategies for regulating their emotions. And one day I was just like, why, why are they having these emotions in the first place? Like, mm-hmm. why is their regulation so poor? And why am I not addressing that? Because mm-hmm. I can give you the strategies all day long, but if we don't actually address what's going on at the root of these behaviors, then the strategies aren't going to work 100% of the time, um, if at all. So that's kind of where I started getting into more of the nutritional baseline of, you know, are these kids adequately nourished? And the other caveat to that is, are they getting enough sleep? Because sleep is so restorative. But um, there's a lot of speech sleep specialists out there. I was like, all right, I'm passionate about nutrition. I'm going to go this route. 
Um, and then once I like started approaching conversations with, okay, like what did they eat for breakfast? If your morning routine and getting out the door was difficult, okay, they had cereal or a muffin. Let's maybe change their breakfast food and see if that helps you stick to this morning routine a little bit better. And just the results that I would see from that small change was astronomical. Um, and, you know, I think it, it makes a big difference to address the food first and then the behavior second. Love that. Love that. And that's a, that's a really interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So do we want to maybe go into like what some of these root causes for the picky eater could sure. potentially stem from and like where that sympathetic drive and a young child might be coming from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of how I mentioned a little earlier, um, you know, that fight or flight response that they're having when new things are presented to them. And a lot of the time without their warning, you know, like there may be some parents out there that are saying, I know we normally have the dinosaur chicken nuggets, but tonight we're going to make our own chicken nuggets. But I'm sure for as many parents out there that have that conversation with their kids, there's twice as many, if not more parents that just make the change without having that conversation. Mm. So that alone is going to put more of that fear and that discomfort into kids um, without the parents even realizing it. Like sometimes it's as simple as having that small conversation of, I know we normally do this, but tonight we're going to try something different. And um, that a lot of the time can help that stressful response. Um, But factors that can intensify some of that perceived threat and the resulting behaviors that can um, happen when kids are trying or presented with new foods and um, parents are wanting them to try new foods. um, You know, sometimes they perceive that as pressure to eat a food that they're nervous about because they don't know anything about it. Um, So with that, parents can have like a simple conversation of, you know, Um, I put some carrots on your plate today. Let's talk. Like, are the, what color are the carrots? Are they, I cooked them. So are they a little soft or are they still crunchy? Um, you know, you like carrots when they're still crunchy. Let's see how we like them when they're cooked. And then we can talk about the differences. So just the more conversations that can be had about the food can decrease that nervousness of, well, I normally eat carrots when they're an inch long and in a plastic bag after school. Mm-hmm. Why are they now cut up into circles on my plate at dinner? Um, and just talking about those differences can make a huge, I guess for lack of a better word, difference um, in how the kids perceive the, the food because the changes to foods they like can sometimes be perceived by their system as an entirely different food mm. that makes them uncomfortable. Mm. But if parents can have that conversation of this is the same food, it's just cooked differently or cut differently. Um, it can just decrease that stress response of, Oh, okay, well I like carrots. Why don't I try them this way? And so, do you think that the delivery in the tone, hundred like, do you think kids can see between that being like, you're not leaving the table until you eat this. And it's like a fear 
100% versus, Hey, we're going to eat this because this is going to keep you nice and strong. This Mm -hmm. is going to help you grow nice and big. Do you, do you talk a lot about how, you know, the same kind of goal, but it's how you're positioning it and how, because if I think of things, I, even when I was little, I like love to know like the benefit of certain things. Like, why am Mm -hmm. I eating this? Why am I eating this? Like probably not when I was five, but Maybe, (laughs) you know, but I think when you can reframe certain things to say, Hey, you know, we're going to do this type of chicken tonight. It's not, it's not the chicken nuggets, but this is, you know, this is a little bit better for us, or this is going to make you feel a little bit better. This might not hurt your tummy. Um, are you big with kind of the dialogue around what all that looks like? 100%. Um, I think the more, um, matter of fact, some, like a parent can present something to a kid the less the kid is going to perceive what the parent is saying as threatening. Um, Because even if it's not a demand, like you need to eat this before you can leave the table or you need to eat this to have dessert or, you know, you have to eat your veggies before you can eat your toast, like whatever it is. um, If it's just presented as kind of matter of fact of this is what's for dinner tonight. Um, We're all going to try it. We're all going to talk about it. Um, It, it makes them just more at ease and more comfortable with what they're being presented with versus like immediately feeling threatened. Like, well, mom is saying I can't leave the table unless I eat this, but I don't know what this is. It's uncomfortable. It's new. That means I can never leave the table. Like that's the mm-hmm. like dialogue that's going through the kids' heads. So then they feel like they can never leave the table, which puts them more in that fight or flight response of, well, now I can't regulate my emotions. And now I'm like, I'm sweating. I'm hot. I mean, think about how we feel when Mm -hmm. our fight fight or flight response is activated. Our heart rate is increased. We're sweating. We're, our stomach may hurt. And then, you know, that's a whole other element. If they're, if their stomachs hurt, they're going to be less willing to eat. Um, so the more like calm parents can keep these conversations, especially when they're wanting to implement new things and teach their kids. Um, I mean, kids are such sponges and they love learning and, but they're only going to be interested in learning if it's presented in a fun way to them, Mm -hmm. Um, which is kind of something we can maybe transition into because I think we've done a good job of covering the things that'll kickstart that fight or flight response and make those kids nervous and less willing to eat. Mm -hmm. Um, so what do you, what do you do about it? Right? Like we, we've talked about, um, changing that conversation and keeping things kind of calm, cool and collected, Mm -hmm. but there's definitely, um, strategies further than that, um, that we can get into next if you'd like to do that. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, so, Like we said, um, things that can escalate that stress response are things like bribery or, um, like I said, finish your food before you can leave the table. Okay, so you want them to eat the food, right? That's why you're saying finish before you get to be done with dinner. So how do we make it fun? How do we make it interesting for the kids to even want to try, let alone finish the food? Because, you know... I think there's a lot of pressure of you need to try this and you need to like it and you need to eat all of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you've never fed a kid, 
I don't know, like oysters on a cracker before, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like they might not like it at first. Like some adults don't like oysters on crackers. So, um, you know, how do we make it fun? Um, one of the things that I love suggesting, um, after the conversational piece that we've talked about and teaching the kids, this is good for your eyes or your bones or your brain. Cause I mean, what kid doesn't want to have a strong brain, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, after you have that conversation, like what can we do either to the food or with the food to make it more fun? Um, Children learn through modeling and play. So that is the most important thing to work into into mealtimes. Modeling how you want them to engage with the food So maybe it's something that's new for the whole family and like you and your partner aren't sure if you're going to like it either. Um, Like I know when I tried liver liver for the first time, I was like, uh, what do I do? (laughs) How do I prepare this? Like, you know, so um, the same thing, like if it's something that you're all trying for the first time, like model smelling it, model, um, you know tasting it just on the tip of your tongue, model chewing it and talking about what all of those properties of the food mean. Um, you know, like, oh, that's an oyster. That's kind of slimy in my mouth. Um, you know, what I like things that are chewy. How can I make this chewier? And just mm. having those um, like conversations and being able to model your experience with the food helps kids understand how to make sense of it themselves mm-hmm. versus, you know, you know, mom and dad just, they're able to eat this. Like how, you know? And I think as adults, we do a lot of things um, subconsciously almost like because we're so routine about so much. Mm-hmm. And even, um, you know, when it comes to eating or regulating our own emotions, it can kind of seem like magic to these kids. Like, if we're upset, we have our strategies that we go through, but they don't see us going through those strategies. So they don't understand how we go from being mad that you broke a mirror to cleaning it up and taking deep breaths and all this stuff. So how do we go from, I'm trying this new food to, okay, like I can eat this and chew it and enjoy it. Um, Modeling is huge. And then the other thing that I mentioned was um, playing. And just getting messy with foods again. I mean, obviously, kids do it when they're kids because their motor control is way less. Um, so they smash their food and they swirl their food on their plate. Like, do that again. Um, or, you know, build something out of the food. Like, who can make the most number of letters with the new green beans on your plate? Right. And like, kids love games, make it a game, just play with the food. And like that alone decrease, decreases their stress response so much, um, and causes them to be more willing to try. So those are like my two big things, um, to, you know, break the tension and decrease that stress at the table. Um, and the last like thing I like to recommend to families is involve the kids in the preparation of the food. Love that. If they know where the food is coming from and it's not just showing up on their plate, it makes a world of difference in their willingness to engage with it and try it. 
um, and, you know, kind of stops that stress response before it even starts because they went to the grocery store with you and they got it. They helped you cook it in the kitchen and now it's on their plate. So they know where it came from and kids as messy as it can be to have kids help in the kitchen. It's such a good learning experience for them and it helps them with so much of what we've been talking about today. And as well as like life skills of understanding early on how to cook food and where it comes from to getting it on their plate and being able to eat it. Um, so those are like my big things, um, increasing the conversation, playing with the food, um, keeping things low stress as matter of fact, and as possible. Um, and then just involving them in the kitchen. Um, I think once we bring it back to those basics, a lot of changing how kids eat and what they're willing to try can be solved without any intense intervention and feeding therapy Mm -hmm. um, because their stress response is just ready to learn. And it's in that parasympathetic state of, okay, I'm safe. I'm comfortable. What do I do? Perfect. I love that. So kind of going off of once their body's kind of already in this parasympathetic response, I know you do Mm -hmm. a lot with, you know, ingredient advocacy Mm -hmm. and all those types of things. So what does that look like if they've kind of been so programmed to eating, you know, the lucky charms, the garbage cereals, like what does it look like then to kind of deprogram what is so yummy and tasty to them to reframing it to saying, Hey, we're going to eat some foods that are going to be a little bit better for your energy. They're going to be better for you and reframing that and teaching, teaching them essentially how to get their body Mm -hmm. unaddicted to these foods. What does that look like? Yeah. Great question. Um, and I'm glad you brought it up because I think it's important for us to touch on. Um, so as an example, um, I've worked with a family before that like cannot break away from their kid demanding a Nutella sandwich after school every day. I'm like, okay, so you're not going to be able to go from, I didn't buy Nutella. We're not having Nutella in this house anymore. That's not an option because, whoa, talk about a fight or flight response, right? So how can we alter the food that they have that's preferred into something that maybe has the same general tastes but we know is a little bit more nutritious for them. So with that Nutella example, you know, we can make chocolate hazelnut spread at home without the cups of sugar and the palm oil and all this stuff. So maybe that's a place to start. Um, Or, you know, just looking at certain things like fruit snacks or crackers that are preferred snacks for these kids And back to what we were saying about talking about things in a matter-of-fact way and keeping it low stress, okay, I know you normally like Welch's fruit snacks after school. This week, we're going to try Annie's fruit snacks after school. Three months later, okay, we've been liking these. What if we make our own fruit snacks? You know, and then like you're in control of what is going into your kids' bodies. Um, but then they also feel in control because it's still a food that they enjoy. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the things I do the most with families that like you're saying, their kids are addicted to these hyper palatable foods. 
what do they do about it? And it's about those small changes of keeping the preferred food the same, but changing a little bit about it each time it's presented. Um, And I mean, when adults go through some of these changes nutritionally, um, we, some, some people can just like zero to six, zero to a hundred, throw out the bad food, replace with all good food, um, or all better food. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, sometimes people can't do that. And that because they can't go from A to Z doesn't mean that they're going to fail completely. Right. Some people need more of that handholding and okay, let's, you, you like Lay's chips. Why don't we try, um, that was a bad example because I don't know <laughs> potato chip ones, but like, okay, you like tortilla chips. Why don't we try siete chips? You know what I mean? Like it's still fulfilling that chip desire, but it's not completely cutting out chips. Yep. Um, it's the same thing with kids. I mean, they might need a little bit more conversation around it um, and an explanation as to why their parents are making these changes, but they're not incapable of learning and going through the transition with the family. Um, I do highly recommend people read the book Sugar Proof. Um, I think it's called Sugar Proof Your Kids. Um, It talks about a lot other than sugar. Obviously, the focus is on sugar, but they give a really nice um, summary, I guess, of how as a family to go through these changes and like make them successful. Love Um, that. Yeah, I'll add that. I'll make sure I add that to the show notes. Sugar proof. It's a good one. Sugar um, sugar proof yeah, your sugar, child. Sugar proof your kids, I think is what it's called. It's written by um two authors. That's their names are escaping me right now. But um Is it sugar proof the hidden dangers of sugar that are putting your child's health at risk? And what can you do? That might be it. Okay. Yes. That is Emily it. Ventura and Michael yes. Gorin. Okay. Yep, perfect. with all the sugar cubes on the front. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's the one. So good. Perfect. I will be adding that to my list as well. (laughs) Awesome. No, that's, that's so great. And I love the, because, and I think a lot of people think that, oh, healthy is just boring. Like you have to take out Mm -hmm. all of these things that you love and you don't, like you said, hazel, uh, Nutella spray is, or spray, Nutella spread (laughs) is just horrible. I mean, there's buckets and buckets of sugar, but what's to say that you can't make a homemade hazelnut butter mixed with cocoa powder. Exactly. exactly. You know, it, and it's just as good. And then you can put it on like a, maybe a homemade sourdough bread mm-hmm. or something that's better than, you know, typical white bread. And it's kind of this stair stepping where you're, it's not like you're like, okay, well you're used to having Nutella every day. Like you're going to have a vegetable smoothie right. with nothing right. else in it where you're completely uprooting their life. You're just kind of how we do for when adults make swaps. It's take something and you swap it for a better ingredient. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think too often we forget that um, kids are just little adults, right? So we can do things the same way with them that we do with ourselves. It just might take a little bit more nurture and um, assistance and education because they're learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if I said to a family recently I was working with, like, it's never too late. Um, and I know you probably talk about this with the people you work with that are adults and they're wanting to make these changes. Mm-hmm. Like just because mm-hmm. you have an eight-year-old that's addicted to, um, I don't know, whatever they're <laughs> addicted to after school. I didn't want to use my goldfish example again, but I almost went there. Um, <laughs> but whatever they're addicted to after school that you want to break them of, 
it doesn't mean that it's too late. It just means that it's going to take a little bit of effort. And um, I'll kind of leave with a lot of the, the things I say to some families. Um, do you want it to be hard now or hard forever? Because some of the changes that you're wanting to make are going to be hard right now. I mean, no kid likes change. No person likes change. Like we're not wired that way. But if we don't make the changes now, then it's going to be hard forever. And it's going to be a battle you're continually going to have versus just having the battle now and making it not a battle um, through everything that we've talked about the past, you know, 40 minutes or whatever. Um, I think it, it helps set families up for more long-term success because if they don't make these changes, but they're always kind of wanting to make the changes and they don't know what to do about it, it's going to be hard forever. Um, and there's always going to be that feeling of, I want my kids to eat better, but I don't know how to do it. And now they're 12 and there's no point. That's not true. There's yeah. Always time. It just takes a little bit of sacrifice and um, creativity almost on like, okay, how can I engage my kids in doing this without putting them into that fight or flight response and totally shutting their systems down? Exactly. And I think a lot of it too can be le- obviously leading by example, um, mm-hmm. but then kind of the education piece around it. Nick and I are always joking that when our kids go to school, uh-huh. if we send them to like public school if, and I don't choose to homeschool them because the world mm-hmm. is crazy, they're, they're going to be like being like, oh, well, that food, you know, is linked to cancer and all this stuff, <laughs> you know, not to like fear monger, but yeah. I do think that it's important when you're a kid that, that it's not like you can just eat, you know, I mean, we look at ADHD and all these mm-hmm. hypersensitivity disorders and children and how they're so heavily linked to dyes and artificial yes. things that if we can kind of educate, Hey, you know, this is the cereal that we used to buy. But, you know, if you have an option between this cereal that's maybe organic and better and no artificial and this one, you know, still kind of letting them be a part of the process, but educating them maybe along the way, is that yes. kind of something that, that you recommend and kind of, uh, especially kind of for this transition, especially if you're already in the midst of, you know, okay, we've already eaten all this stuff. I understand mm-hmm. how bad this stuff is and how it might contribute to these certain things. How do we make that change? Yeah. You know. And I, I, yes, exactly. And I think too, it, it's important to remember that balance that we even talk about for adults. Like it's that 80, 20, right? We mm-hmm. don't have to be a hundred percent perfect a hundred percent of the time. Like if you have a strong foundation at home or you're actively trying to like redo the foundation for your kids at home, having them go to a birthday party and them eating red food dye for one piece of cake like isn't going to completely derail the progress you're trying to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you kind of lose sight of that and really stress about that, again, that puts those kids in that fight or flight response of, oh, well, I go to a birthday party. I can never eat the cake. Mm-hmm. That's not healthy either, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, definitely like keeping in mind that you're making these changes at home and you're educating the kids on, you know, this is why we don't eat these foods all the time at home anymore because, you know, they, and we didn't get into this either, but, you know, kids can develop some awareness of, okay, well, how do I feel after that birthday party when I ate what I don't normally eat? You know, I feel really hyper and then I feel really sluggish and I can't Mm -hmm. pay attention to anything, right? So developing that awareness can be huge too. 
I totally agree. And I think that's so important to, you know, how do you feel when you guys eat this? Do you feel good? Do you feel tired? What does your stomach feel like? Mm -hmm. You know, just kind of getting kids in tune with their body. I see so many adults that are not in tune with their body at all that I think if we can start that when they're younger, even, even if they're teenagers, you know, being able to get them in tune, obviously the younger, I'm sure the more beneficial, but like you said, it's never too late. It's definitely not about being perfect, but that way we could just make informed choice, you know, even Mm -hmm. as adults. Oh, you know, I had an, uh, you know, a little bit more dessert than I usually do. Wow. Like that always reminds me, I don't really feel great when I do it, but it's okay. It's not the end of the world. It's just reiterating that most of the time, the things that you're doing are, working really well for you because you feel great and you don't typically feel like that. And it kind of could be the same thing for kids. Yeah. And you read my mind. I was going to say like when kids have that awareness, it just creates such a better relationship with food that carries them through their entire life. Like I had a terrible relationship with food up until like two, three years ago from um, just my food habits as a kid. And then when I first started making a lot of these changes. Like I did go more all or nothing and I stressed myself out and it wasn't good. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, if you can help, if parents can help their kids develop these healthy relationships at first and that awareness of, yeah, you know, when I eat sugar for the first time in a week and I like go ham on it and eat way too much, then I feel not good. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's a learning experience and, you know, you learn maybe next time eat less sugar and still enjoy yourself, but developing that awareness of their body creates such a healthier relationship with food for the long term, no matter when it starts, if it's three years old, if it's eight year old, eight years old, if it's before they go to college, like there's always time to make those changes and have the found like form the foundation for those healthy relationships with food. I could not agree more. Could not agree more. I love that. So kind of like wrapping everything up, if you were to kind of like put everything into kind of like three main takeaways for healthy developmental eating, Mm -hmm. what would those kind of like three kind of tips, homework for people listening, things to implement, like what would those three things be? Um, I'd say first, just as adults, remember that your kids aren't giving you a hard time. They're having a hard time. Mm. Um, So if you're trying to make these changes and you're stressing out because your kid is having all these behaviors and going through whatever their little systems are going through, um, parasympathetically or sympathetically, and they're having a hard time with it, they're not just like intentionally behaving poorly at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. Um, So keeping that in mind, I think can be what can help parents take a step back and realize that this is a journey and they just need to realize, they just need to remember that their kids are working through it and they're not intentionally making things difficult. I think that's kind of like the top thing for parents to remember Once they remember that, I'd say the second thing would just be, um, you know, presenting things in a matter of fact way without judgment or pressure, staying calm, um, because that's going to spark that curiosity to try new things and engage with new foods and decrease mealtime stress for everybody in the family. Mm -hmm. Um, not just the kid, not just the parent, the siblings who are watching. Um, so 
that that's huge too. Just staying calm. Um, the, you might be able to put this in the show notes, but, um, Ellen Slater or Slatter, um, created something called the division of responsibility. And it's, um, parents are in charge of what the kid eats, where they eat and when they eat. Kids are in charge of whether or not they eat the food and how much of it they eat. Um, so that alone can help parents stay in that calmer, presenting things as a matter of fact way, because, you know, this is what's for dinner. We're eating at the table and it's 530. We're eating now versus forcing their kids to eat the food because kids are really in charge of whether or not they eat it and how much of it they eat. Um, so all of that goes together in presenting foods without judgment or pressure and staying calm. And then I'd say the third thing um, are just kind of the um, strategies that I went through on like making things more fun for kids through play, through talking about the food, through getting involved in the food um, prep and the food shopping and all of that um, will really get kids to be more curious and more willing to engage with the food and try new foods and implement all of the healthy changes parents are trying to implement. I love that. Very easy, concise, (laughs) and I think actionable. You know, if these aren't things that people were aware of before, I think a lot of this stuff was very actionable and, you know, things that people can do. I'm glad. That's, that is the goal of what I am trying to do and just kind of the goal of occupational therapy in general. Like if things aren't meaningful or attainable for people, they're not going to make the changes or reach their goals. So um, it's super important to make things easy and actionable. So I'm glad it came across that way. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, absolutely. It, it definitely did. Awesome. Do you have any closing thoughts, things that you want, like want the audience to know um, and also tell everyone where they can find you, connect with you um, and yeah. all that kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, I think we've gone over so much information today that I just want to remind parents that like I've said, it's never too late to make the healthy changes um, and also remind them that they have the power to educate their kids and, um, you know, have their kids want to make these changes and be healthy throughout their entire life. Um, because I think so often parents can kind of just get into routines and, think that, you know, I just have to get through the day and all of this stuff. But remember that you are forming little humans and um, it's okay if it's that 80-20. It doesn't need to be perfect, but making those small steps is going to make a big difference over time. Um, I think that usually helps parents reset um, and recharge to make the changes with their kids. Love that. Um, and then in terms of where they can find me, um, I'm actually trying to build out my own business. Um, I stopped practicing clinically about six months ago, um, and I'm really trying to help more families do exactly what we've been talking about today um, and work in my passions for OT and nutrition. 
and how to make sustainable changes for families that aren't necessarily starting off from a whole food baby led weaning foundation um, because it doesn't need to be an all or nothing. The changes can be made anytime. So Mm -hmm. um, that Instagram is live freely nourished. Um, And then if you want to follow me personally, I'm at Allie M dot Owen. You post so much good stuff on there too. I don't know how people, they'll just have to follow you on both. (laughs) Yeah. It's actually been really fun because April is OT month and we're recording this in April. So I decided, I decided to like take that as my launching pad to connecting OT to nutrition um, and just providing that education. So every day is um, a letter of the alphabet and how it relates to engagement in occupations and daily life. So oh, I love that. That's so yeah. great. It's been fun following along with all of that. And so thank you. Um, people will definitely have to kind of go tune in, check on, check in on you over there. Um, well, and thank you so much for being on. It's been so great connecting with you, getting to know you and being obviously someone that I, I call a dear friend of mine. And it's just so Aww. cool to like now see you kind of really jump into something totally different not totally different, but like step into your own space and really make it your own. Yeah. Well, thank you. I have always appreciated your knowledge and guidance and uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's keep creating healthy foundations for kids and families. And I think, I think uh, we're making differences, Haley, and I have loved to be your friend throughout the process. And I always appreciate your support. Oh, I appreciate you. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And I can't wait to hear people's feedback on what they learned. So make sure to share this in your story. You can tag both Allie and I um, so that and let us know like one key takeaway that you found and are looking to implement. I love seeing what people have to say and what they learn. So thank you so much, Allie. And thank thank you. you everyone for listening. Thank you, Haley.